Hello. Hi, I just took a Hello sip there. of my weirdly mixed lemonade that I made myself just the second before I was uh, supposed yeah. to talk. I was supposed to take the lead. I could see that and I just thought I'd leave the, the dead air for, for a few seconds. Hi, everyone. Hi. Welcome. Welcome to Plants and Pipettes. Uh, the very regular po podcast about plant science. Yes, it happens often. Yes. Uh, and in a timely manner. <laughs> yeah, we've had stuff happening. Um, but now we're back. Now we're doing the show again. Um, how are you, Tegan? Good. <laughs> <laughs> let's go let's get through go through everything we did since last summer when we i think oh recorded last episode yeah actually i was um calculating today how many weekends i've actually physically been in my house and not had other people staying in my house so like either been home and not had guests and it's it's just not enough it's like since in the last six months no in the last nine months it's less than 10 or 12 weeks worth of weekends that i've been <laughs> It's exhausting, but it's also like, it's just the, the the most ridiculous thing to complain about. Like, oh, I have friends who visit me and then I visit my <laughs> friends. Like, my life is very hard. Um, I have so many nice. good it's times. Nice. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I keep on mentioning this thing of like, my method is just to keep on planning things, even though the thought of doing anything more makes me exhausted and then hope that it all turns out well. And yeah, I don't know. There are memories, right? Memories are great. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's also how I approach it most of the time. It's like... S uh, similar to like uh, like I, I visited you visited you actually like one of those weekends was me s staying at your place yeah. in in London and that was that <laughs> you was were great the one, fun. one of the reasons I had no sleep you're the problem <laughs> actually when you came I was very sick um and I yes. drugged myself out up and went out and yeah explored the world um yeah but which is a problem <laughs> I was I was also like very tired nice. and exhausted before I left but then we had a really good time um mm. I had lots of good food and lots of fun times so um yeah definitely worth it and I think that's still to this day my approach day. <laughs> my, no my approach like like I'm I'm not really happy about making plans until the actual plans begin and then I'm fine and I like it and I enjoy it I look back happy that I did them mm. but until the minute that the actual fun begins i'm just like oh maybe can i still oh. go home and and just say sorry i i got a headache i got something uh, i i have to leave one thing that i do want to mention that we did do when you came to visit was we went to see a very i don't know punky like quite <laughs> yes. like proper punk band in in london in a place where like the the location It's New Cross Inn, right? It's something where when I mentioned it to my housemate, he's like, oh, that place. Wow, that's like, that's like the, pro you know, that's the real thing. Real thing, mate. Um, and it was enough of the real thing that when Yaram and I rocked up there, the the guy at the door kind of looked at us yes. <laughs> and was like, okay, are, are you going in there? Like, it would seem... <laughs> are you coming for this show? Are you sure? <laughs> yeah. Are you lost, basically? Um, but that was very fun. Yoram, you moshed a little bit. Yes, it was It was very intense. And, uh, like, I like heavy and loud music, um, but this was one of, like, on a, on a far end of the spectrum for me of, like, intense music. Uh, but mm. I, I had a great time, and uh, there were really nice people. Um, Like the crowd, uh, like I, we didn't like it was small enough that we could have talked to the band, but we didn't talk to the band because they were making loud music. But the crowd, <laughs> like while they were like very aggressively dancing, they were also like very like considerate and considerate. nice. It's the thing that they always say about like metalheads and stuff. They say like, yeah, they all look like gnarly and evil and 
bad but they're actually super kind and they help you up and they make sure nobody gets hurt in the mosh pit and and so on and that definitely was the thing there as well like everybody looked at each other like oh this is really intense um but we're all having fun but we're looking out for each other um and i can compare that to, like i went to another band that's like we went to discharge was the band that we saw together in london and then uh two no not even a two week like four days later uh, I went to the Bass Drum of Death concert. It's sort of like an indie rock band. They sound more evil, but they're less evil than Discharge. Uh, but there, the crowd was absolutely annoying to dance with. They had none of the consideration. There were like two guys just like holding them each other by the head and just like swinging each other through the crowd, just like oh, bashing like into people and... Mm. Like not not an ounce of consideration for other people, and I was like, yeah, I I had I had more fun going to like the hardcore punk concert in like a red jumper and like a knitted jumper <laughs> uh, where everybody looked at me. Not not so many like the the bounce I looked at as funny for like not fitting in with the crowd. In, in a very kind way, in fairness, yes, so yeah, it was just yeah, more yeah. like, are you okay? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was fun. That's definitely something I, I yeah I would not normally do, and it was very fun. I will definitely remember this. Yeah. And the other big news for your life, Yoram, is that you are... Unemployed. <laughs> I mean, that's also the reason why we didn't do the show for a while, because I just... Work was too much. I didn't have any mental space left to to mm. do something else. And now my contract, it was like, it was a fixed time contract. And so, like, the contract ran out. And I haven't started anything new yet. So if anybody needs in the Berlin area, like a person that understands science and can write and talk about science, hire me, please. Um, <laughs> but right now, yeah, I'm I'm looking for stuff. Uh, but also now this gives me the time to think again about plant science. And actually, uh, just today, I realized like how amazing it is to do research on like research um, like in compared to like if you're a journalist and you write about politicians or companies like nobody really wants to talk to you like and if you're not doing PR for them they mm -hmm. rather not tell you any details but if you ask any scientist anything that you care about what they do they will just immediately overshare they will immediately yeah. be like like I had a, like I read a cool story about like microplastic turning into nanoplastic and uh, it ended like all of these stories and with like yeah we have to do more research to figure out if this is actually bad or not um and then i just googled around and found like a german institute uh, that deals with the toxicity of microplastics i just wrote an email i was like hey i read a paper um and now i have some questions can you help me and immediately like the the pr person from there um sent forwarded a message to the institute another researcher got in touch with me i was on a phone call today with them and chatted a little bit about like um the the how hard it is to study microplastics and for just and I just doing this sort of for myself for fun. I don't really know yet what I will do with this information, how I will like produce something out of it. But like just immediately got really cool insights from somebody doing the actual research just by sending an email. Like there was no big effort um there. Like I didn't have to do a scoop. I didn't have to like mm do any sort of hardcore investiga investigative journalism. I would just like read a paper, be like, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to ask some smart people. And the smart people are immediately like, hey, cool, you're interested. Let me tell you something. And then I learn stuff. And I really, really like that. So Very cool. Yeah.
I have I have a really quick one. Um, my friend just sent it to me actually an hour ago or something, and it's from a website which is called Potato News Today. Um, which <laughs> I didn't know contains... you read German news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh dear. Um, according to the tagline, it contains no nonsense, no frills, potato news stories from around the world, which I can only assume she follows regularly. I'm not sure, like, what's happening. But the news is just that um, Latin America will actually, um, Argentinian scientists have developed the first Latin American GM, so genetically modified potato. And the point of this is that the potatoes, when they're peeled, normally if you peel a potato and then you leave it there for a little bit, something happens. They, they, they turn brown, but uh, to be honest... I never had a potato turn brown. I had the same thing with like apples. I always said like sprinkle a bit of lemon juice on an apple to keep it from browning. I never had that issue. I always had like weird varieties already that don't really brown that much. Like if I leave it for a day, but like then I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Usually the correct answer is they, they, they turn brown unless you have like some weird super potatoes like I do. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say a day. Because now we have genetically edited potatoes. So this is like a CRISPR-Cas9 editing where they've basically just um, turned off the gene that is encoding that it's a polyphenol oxidase. So it's the thing that is making this oxidization happening, which is where you see the brown. So they've basically just turned it off. Um, and now it's two days that your potatoes can wait without getting brown. Um And it sounds like they've already submitted this to sort of the food regulatory people um, what's the right word? The, the body, I guess, does the regulation <laughs> in Argentina. And I think there it's there's no foreign gene, so for them it's considered to sort of be safe already. So it looks like this is something that would ultimately probably become available. So for those of you who are very worried, unlike Yoram, about the browning of the potatoes, I think it's, it's good a, news. <laughs> it's probably also like an industry thing, right? Like it's something where if you like harvest potatoes and then uh, process them in some way there it's it's uh, important that once you've peeled like a big bucket of potatoes it doesn't immediately turn brown uh, until you have time to properly process them uh, where like at, at, in home cooking i think usually the time between peeling and cooking the potato is so short that it doesn't really matter but I don't know. Yeah, I guess, like, I, I mean, it sounds like so much of the stuff that is, you know, our fruit and vegetable, there's so much stuff involved in making it look the right way. Like, the the value, like, how much it's worth is not just related to the taste, but, like, how it ap appears as far as the size, the shape. And, you know, we have all these, like, wonky rescued fruit movements these days. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess this can be part of it. Um, Yeah, also maybe you can sell pre-peeled potatoes to that market, like the pre-peeled bananas that go in the plastic bag, these kind of things. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, just another thing that's happening with GM these days. Uh, following up on CRISPR, I also have a, a thing, like from the same family, actually, also a nightshade uh, from tomato plants with CRISPR. Um, this time it's not really about the actual like variety that they created, but they looked at uh, predictability of CRISPR mutations. So they they targeted three different fruit size related genes with CRISPR mm -hmm. um, and mutated them. And 
then analyzed the outcome in the combination of these three mutants and they didn't follow exactly the predictions which was the outcome of this paper which means that there's some there is a role of like background mutations that you usually get from like classic breeding techniques where you have all sorts of mutations accumulate you just pick the ones that you actually like uh, but stuff is happening in the background and it can sometimes be like very subtle effects that you can't directly measure but they can sometimes relate to fitness or to like other traits of the plant um, that you sort of take with you without but you're still looking at the one gene but there's sort of all of this like hidden background of background mutations and in CRISPR you don't have the background mutations that's why we always like are so happy about it because we can very clearly decide where the cut will be where the mutation will be and nothing else happens I mean, yeah, I mean, you could have off targets. I exactly, just want to say, yeah. like, yeah, just they, they, they can be off targets. Uh, like, depending on how you design your your guide RNA for in your CRISPR system, you can have you can have like like always biology. It's a spectrum, but usually, usually <laughs> in theory, CRISPR does one thing and doesn't do the background mutations that much, um, while traditional breeding does background mutations, and then you like back cross until you only have to think that you care about plus like some percentage of background and in this paper now they found that there has that like there's some importance of these background uh, mutations um because uh when they crossed like um classically bred mutations in these like three genes uh, in these fruit size related genes they would get a different outcome than if they would just do the CRISPR editing which means mm-hmm. that it's like the predictable like just from like the conventional knowledge that you have from traditional breeding doesn't directly translate to everything you do in CRISPR so you still have like some sort of trial and error period also when you do like the CRISPR editing even though undoubtedly CRISPR makes it faster like there's n- there's not much question about that because you can quick more quickly get to the mutations it just means like sometimes the result isn't immediately the perfect thing that you want to have, but you have to do some more tests or like um, figure out that actually like one of the traits that you think is related to a gene is maybe something from like the network of background mutations that influences that. I mean, I don't know if we actually talked, how much we talked about this because it's been such a long time since we podcast, but like over the summer, there was sort of the EU making a decision on the GM legislation, right? So there's, kind of something that came down I think in July it was um yeah on the 5th of July there was the legislative proposal um from the European Commission on how it will see plants that have been derived from genome editing so this is this big discussion about how sort of bad they are in terms of GMs being considered bad and traditional breeding being considered sort of good and safe um and so like that's kind of there's some good news from that as far as Um, plants that have changes that could occur spontaneously or could occur by conventional breeding now fit into this category one of plants and the secondary category is things that are not fitting into that so basically the first category could include CRISPR or CAS stuff um, and the second one or not all of it but you know anything where you haven't added genes in and the second one is something where you're adding like a, a gene from another species or something like that so this is kind of good news as far as moving forward for those who are like, like you are, I'm very pro the CRISPR technology and, you know, moving forward with genetically modified plants in the EU, which is up until now being quite a hard line, I guess. Yeah. Um, even though it's, it's 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 a like early stage proposal as far as I understood yes. it like yeah, I, yeah. I don't fully understand the EU regulatory process, but it's it's like it's far from being like 
put into law right now, but it's 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 a significant step already, like in a forward direction. Like before that, there wasn't even this kind of proposal, and now at least there's like some interest groups, like strong interest groups that like are pushing this to. Yeah, well, so now the proposal is actually saying, hey, this like this way of doing it where you're just you know cutting something or making like a, a, a few base mutations or something like that this isn't something that's so far different from traditional breeding whereas previously like at the legal point like the the opinion has been that these are very scientifically different things which is it's not the case right so like one was considered safe the traditional breeding and one was considered unsafe um so yeah anyway if you want to read about that there's a nice article about that in trends in plant science that um is worth a look and I also have like a thing that sort of ties into that the whole question about like how like what can you do with traditional breeding or like traditional selection methods like compared to often like the transgenic methods where you just take a foreign gene and put it into your plant. There have been some researchers from Sheffield that uh, looked at grasses. They constructed some new reference genomes for uh, a grass species, like four different species uh, of Alloteropsis seminala semialata. And uh, one Alloteropsis angusta, so they create Wait, like I need five. I don't know what that is. What is that like, even? It's like a grass. That's all I know. <laughs> like it's it's a grass. Oh, it's, it's called cockatoo grass. That's cute. Yeah, and so they created like five new reference genomes, and then they look for laterally acquired genes, so oh. genes that are not coming from like within its lineage, but something from the outside, something like a foreign gene that they take up from a different plant. And they found quite a lot of them. They, they found 168 different laterally acquired genes in these five reference genomes, um, between like 32 and 100 per individual genome, which again, like back to the whole question, like how unnatural is a transgenic plant? Uh, and I don't like there's no there's no good answer to that because you have to look at other things than like how often you find that in nature. Like naturalism is not a very good way to if you want to do like risk assessments. But still, uh, to these people that say, oh, you can only do this in a lab. Uh, this is like an unnatural um, thing to do. No, it's like it happens all the time, especially in plants that that they take up genes from other sources and build put them in their own genome and keep them around. And wherever we look close enough, we find some of them. Sometimes more, sometimes fewer, but always we find some laterally acquired genes. I'm going to like ra like radically switch topic at the yes, risk of us, like please. so we don't become the yay GMO podcast, um, which is <laughs> always, always the risk here. Yoram. Yes. My question for you today is, what's the difference between a white grape and a red grape? It must be, yes, uh, is it in like the specialized chloroplasts, the chromoplasts, like the the pigment containing little organelles uh, that have different, I guess, anthocyanins in them because it's like this bluish violet color? Or am I completely wrong here? I also assume it is anthocyanins that is making them a purpley blue color, yes. Um, but I guess the question is, um, more specifically, if I took a purple grape and stopped it being purple and everything else about that grape cultivar was the same, but it was no longer making purple grapes, it was like white or, or green grapes, yes. would it? Would the grape taste as sweet? It's like the, the Shakespeare thing. Would a grape by any other color still taste as sweet? Are, are they usually sweeter than the, the green ones? I wasn't, wasn't even aware of that. I thought they're just like very similar. 
um, because I had very sweet green grapes. So yeah, it, I guess it wouldn't change much to the sugar content of it unless like these anthocyanins, they have these uh, antioxidative properties and that is important for the protection of some flavor compounds that could maybe... So I could imagine that there's like some subtle hints, like some subtle changes in flavor, but overall like sweetness or like sugar content, I would not expect that to change really. Yeah, so there's a study that came out in JXB at the end of October and it's by Rodriguez, Lorenzo and colleagues. And it's looking, it's called the flavor of grape color. And they sort of did exactly that experiment. They weren't looking specifically at sugar, but they were looking at the overall flavor of a grape. And they basically took a variety of grape, um, Tempranillo, Tempranillo maybe, um, which is normally a black-berried grape. And they created basically the same thing that had white um, grapes. So it's neurisogenic, everything else, all the other genes are basically the same and all they've done is remove the things that make the color happen in the grape. And they wanted to understand whether these grapes would basically develop in the same way. And they found that there were actually slight differences and it was almost this kind of like secondary effect that was related to just the fact that there's color there. So if you have color in the grape, you're changing the light that comes into the grape um, and then you're changing the environment of that grape. So what they found is that they did some RNA-seq and they also did some targeted and untargeted metabolomics to look at, you know, what's being created in there. And they found that in the grape where they had removed the color, they had higher um, increased regulation of genes related to photosynthesis and light responses. Which makes sense because the grape is less purple, so more light is getting into the grape. Um, and because of those things, you also get higher accumulation of um, certain precursors and things like that in the grapes, which in turn can lead to, you know, downstream expression of other things and production of different metabolites. And ultimately you get this, you know, different microenvironment within the berry, which in turn can condition other fruit features, including their potential to have different flavor, but they also found some upregulation of things like um, stress genes and stuff like that. So they can also um, influence their ability to sort of fend for themselves. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, the color itself is is impacting the light, which in turn is changing, you know, micro environment, I guess, like probably temperature inside as well. And um, oh, yes, I did actually look at that. So temperature inside the white berries was 3.5 degrees lower than in the blackberries, um, which of course then also impacts, you know, how how enzymes are happening, you know, how everything's moving around inside those grapes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very it's very clear when you think about it, like knowing knowing the answer. And yeah, sure, um, that changes a lot. Like the the responses to light. Uh, changed so much like in signaling pathways and so on so that like really changes the metabolic makeup of a thing so it absolutely makes sense yeah very very interesting so that's the thing like the next question is then okay so what's the i mean because now we have a ton of different grape varieties that we're eating so like you you can get very sweet and very you know different flavored grapes but that's that's often all of the breeding and the cultivar and this is just Exactly the same, except for the color. So now, you know, make a side-by-side wine, see how that turns out, like see what you get with the different, like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's a very simple, it's going back to the pure science of removing that one variable and seeing how much it impacts it and getting something a little bit different. 
Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really cool to think about that. Uh, I also have something that's like related to light and signaling and so on. So maybe I'll just continue with that. Um, and uh, I want to talk about sunflowers. Um, have you have you heard the meme about like if sunflowers don't see the sun, they face each other because they like each other so much or something? There's like a share pick that's going around forever. Um, they think they're the sun. They look like yeah. Suns. They, 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 like then people make it like oh yeah, all the sunflowers are like bros. Like you're my sun and so on. Um, it's the true. I don't think we should ever explain memes. I think that should be yeah, yeah vetoed but I mean, on this why, po- podcast, right? But, like, no, but I mean not, not to explain the meme, but why people like it. They were like oh, uh, they were using that then to humanize these these plants. But this is absolutely not true. Like sunflowers don't face each other when they don't see the sun. Um, but <laughs> myth busted. <laughs> Just yeah, in just case to- any of you thought the meme was in fact fact, <laughs> Yaram's here to burst your bubble. No, I mean the, what they actually now do you is- too can comment on your friend's Instagram post and be like, actually, you'll find that's not true. <laughs> No, I, I found a story that's like looking um, at what's going on inside the, the, the sunflower in under different conditions. And I found it quite interesting to think about that. So first of all, like like sunflowers famously follow the sun throughout the day. So they face east in the morning where the sun rises and then they turn west where the sun settles. And then overnight they turn all the way back east. Mm-hmm. Um, and... We don't fully or like we don't really have an understanding of how that works. Like we know mechanistically, like mechanically, not mechanistically, mechanically, they just like grow more on one side than the other in the stem and that bends them. Mm-hmm. So while they're growing, they're sort of like differentially growing, like one one side grows faster than the other. And that's sort of like in the east side during the day grows a little bit more. So like it bends the head following the sun to the to, to west. And then at night the other end grows like the other side grows more the west side and then it bends the head back east. Like actually grows or is yes. just like swelling somehow? Oh no, wow. it's okay. it's like from from you know, what I, I didn't found, know that. it's like actual like growth related. Um okay. And so the whole thing is called heliotropism, like helios mm-hmm. sun and tropism growing towards two. Like we like usually in plants, we very well know phototropism, so just growing towards the light. Um, there's actually like a compound called phototropin that's involved in sensing blue light and then having the plant grow towards the blue light. Um, so that's a very well understood mechanism, this phototropism. Uh, but the heliotropism of the sunflowers is not as well understood. Um, and I've been a, a couple of cool experiments that um, like they did in this study and also in other studies before where they just like move plants f- like from the sun into the greenhouse, for example. So when you do that, uh, you so you have a, a plant that grows on the field and then you move it into the greenhouse where the light source is fixed it still sways from side to side for a couple of days. So that indicates that it's not just like a light-regulated mechanism that's at work here, but something related to the circadian clock, so the internal Mm -hmm. clock of the plant. It's entrained, yeah. Yeah. Whereas when you just, like, you grow the sunflower only in a greenhouse, or, like, eventually, like, it will stop swaying and will just grow towards the light, just, like, classic phototropism style, following the light, growing straight to it. And when you, same as when you grow the plant from the start in a greenhouse, it will just grow towards the light. It, will, it won't start swaying on its own. But when you take a plant that's grown in a greenhouse and you put it in the field, within a single day, it will start its movement. Like, so there seems to be some sort of, like, trigger that reprograms the plant and then immediately it starts doing the the following of the sun. And in this study, they took... um, um a transcriptomic sample, like transcriptome samples. So they looked at the RNA expression um, to figure out 
what's going on like what's what signaling mm -hmm. pathways are going on is it a phototropism in in like a modified version of that uh, and what they found in the study uh, and i found an interesting conclusion is that they saw something happening that they couldn't map to anything known like there was like no known pathway that resembles the response that they measured when they put a plant from the greenhouse into the field and looked at the gene expression on the first day when they were reprogrammed And they did so like some some experiments where they like shaded them from different lights uh, like wavelengths, so from like blue light and red light. They they put like colored boxes over the plants to figure out if that changes the behavior, and it didn't. Like they they would still follow the sun, and they couldn't link it to that. So it just like the the conclusion of the the, the story is like they have now a very accurate map of what's going on in the transcriptome, but they have no idea what the actual signaling pathway is. It's not not something that we know right now. Like there's no known sensor uh, that that understands like that sees the sunlight and then makes the plant move that way. So it's really interesting that the sunflower have like this this hidden internal mechanism that we don't understand yet even though it's like a major like important crop and a very well-known plant we can't explain yet how they actually follow the sun throughout the day maybe it's like the bee thing like you know how they always say bees don't know they can't fly maybe if we tell the sunflowers <laughs> they'll stop doing it maybe maybe if we like, that'll yeah. be easier than actually doing all the work to work out why they're doing it <laughs> yeah I saw you had another fact that's also about sunflowers. Yeah, that's that's very short. It's just like from a, a, another research group. They uh, like usually when you harvest sunflowers, you want you're after the seeds, so you take out the, the sunflower seeds, you make oil from it, for example, or you sell them as they are. Uh, but then you have the stems as a byproduct, and like sunflowers are tall, like they have big stems, and they are like like hard and woody stems, and it's all waste, like it's waste biomass that you have to like compost or do something with them. And in this um in this paper, I I, don't, I forgot what like how where they got the idea from, but they created an extract from these these stems because um, these plants con contain di uh, diterpenoids, uh, a compound that has antifungal activity, mm -hmm. like a group of compounds uh, that have uh, antifungal uh, activity. And so they sprayed some berries with an extract of the sunflower stems and they could delay mold growth on these berries. Um, so they would keep uh, fresh for a little bit longer. Um, and they just took an agricultural waste product and made like a food protective product of this but this is like early research so it hasn't been tested yet like theoretically antifungal compounds could also be not great for humans um so like the it's not a product yet but it's an interesting sort of use of sunflower stems mm. to make your like raspberries last a day longer in the fridge i don't know if i want my raspberries to spray be sprayed with sunflower stems but okay Yeah, again, like it's a question. Does it like, taste good? It can't taste good. I think it depends on like how thin the spray is. If you can actually taste it at all, like mm. uh, if like these di diterpenoids actually do have a taste, I would rather be worried about like some sort of off-target activity of these diterpenoids. Like it depends mm. on how they kill the, the fungus, right? And then like if that is something that could also cause problems in your body when you when you ingest that. Um, at these concentrations that they're using it. So it's like... I'm also like, I think like a lot of plants have like antifungal properties. Otherwise plants would just be like completely overcome by fungus. So like, hmm. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Like I, I have like, my kids really like berries and so often I buy these very expensive berries and then they go moldy. So I would be happy 
to have like a little mm. bit of sunflower stem spray um, if it's safe, if it's safe to consume. But like, I mean, I, I I would guess like I could just grind up mint and spray some mint. That would probably have similarly. Are we sure that like mint goes quite nicely with raspberries and probably that also has antifungal properties, I'd guess. Yeah, but probably you don't have as much um, like waste product okay. or like waste mint available. <laughs> Where like these sunflower stems. I gotta stems. team up with a mojito bar and just get all the stems from there. <laughs> just like every mint. night picking out the stems. <laughs> all right, I'll put it on my to. I've got so many things to do. It's gonna it's gonna go on my to do list, your arm. Okay, I'll have a look at some. <laughs> I'll look for some mojito bars in the nearby. In yes, there. please do. Yeah. Um, speaking of sun or perhaps of stars, um, I think like maybe all of you have already seen this because it was covered by science. There was a um, sort of a news article about it in science, but it's the fact that there has now been a new calculation on how many cells exist, like the number of living cells or cells that are within living things. So some of those are in big living things like trees and yorums, and other ones are in much smaller living things. Like, like Tegans. <laughs> <laughs> like microscopic things, mostly. Um, and the stars come in um, due to the fact that it's the number of cells that have ever existed on Earth is one million times larger than all the stars in the universe. No, sorry, the ones that exist now, the number of cells that have ever lived is 10 orders of magnitude bigger than that. So um, this is calculations that have been done by a team, um, Crockford and colleagues, and they're writing in current biology at the start of November. Uh, the paper is called The Geologic History of Primary Productivity. And actually their aim of the paper is to calculate how much carbon has ever been fixed via primary production over the entire history of Earth. So once upon a time, primary productivity started, and since then, carbon keeps getting fixed. Um, and they calculated that this amount that has been fixed is 10 to the power of 11 to 10 to the power of 12 gigatons of carbon. These numbers are so huge, they basically mean nothing. Yeah. It's just <laughs> insane amounts. Um, but they also predict that about 10 to the 40 cells have existed since the origin origin of life on Earth. Um, and they have a few other details. The reason I bring this up is because we do, of course, need to point out the wins for us plant folks. Um, the most important thing is that more autotrophs and heterotrophs have ever existed. I think that makes logical sense. And the other very important thing is that the cyanobacteria are really the winners when it comes to everything. So the, the complete number of cells alive today is about 10 to the 30. And like most of those are cyanobacteria. So yeah, I think that's kind of a win for us. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yay. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's these like mind bogglingly huge numbers. Um, yeah. I wonder what, like, why do we want, to know this like is there like a high score that we can reach if we have all of like if we reach a certain number we get like a prize well there's a, there's a high score as far as like um so in the article by the, the science kind of cover of this article they say that it couldn't go higher than 10 to the 41 cells we have 10 to the 30 and they're like we kind of these calculations make sense because there's not enough resources on earth to go a lot above that. 
Yeah, but like the difference between like 10 to the 30 and 10 to the 40 sounds like it's just like, yeah, it's just 10 <laughs> plates, but it's like 10 orders of magnitude. That's like a huge difference. Um, but yeah, it's... I, 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 my 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 uh, older kid is now getting into like dinosaurs, and so I had to read mm. lots of books about dinosaurs and like the time frames that these creatures existed. And then also like like it's always just a side note in these books, but I'm always interested in like the plants that were mm. around that, and like just thinking about like the huge amounts of times at a huge amounts of time where just plants existed mostly, and like some creatures in the sea, but. Like plants were just the thing on Earth, and then only at one point, like animals would then come and then actually feed on these plants, and what what that meant for the for for these things. Like the plants have been around for so long, and they've they've shaped the Earth so much. Um, and then well, also like cyanobacteria, like the whole thing with like the these like this the great oxygenation event when suddenly all of these like cyanobacteria would create oxygen and it would kill off all other things that couldn't deal with yeah. the oxygen, and it's just like it's. Like these are things like that that you can put like in a bullet list, but it's it's such a huge amount of time that's behind a thing like the great oxygenation event, um, which is yeah really hard to wrap my my head around sometimes. Well, I guess yeah, it, the the current biology paper does sort of discuss this in the context of the historical time, right? So they're sort of saying, you know, looking at the trajectory of the changes and the the GOE is the great oxygenation event and stuff like that. So they're sort of discussing this also as a way of like timing the earth history somehow. Yeah. I think it's just like, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of a fun thing to do, no? <laughs> Count, counting individual cells. <laughs> very reductive. <laughs> Like yeah. every cell has to go through the cell counter of these guys. Uh, <laughs> all, all of them historically, yeah. Yes, digging them up and like, oh, there has there, there was another cell there. Like we have to count this one as well. I think I want to go with like another very quick thing. Um, we often like I don't know like no, we actually don't talk about them that often, but I've seen very often during my like career, especially in plant biotechnology, like these things about these reporter plants, right? Uh, for uh, for like to sense chemicals, I think there's a better name for them, but I forgot it. I think like you know like when you grow a plant on a field and it tells you where the landmines are because the plants turn red. That's sort of the mm. idea because they sense like some some chemicals that the the explosive gives off and then the plants change the color. And I've been like a um, another thing uh, like that that has been created by researchers from University of California. Uh, they modified an ABA receptor in in plants. Uh, ABA is like a very common signaling molecule for like a big signaling cascade. Um, and they ch- modified one of these receptors uh, that uh, can can bind ABA to instead bind a banned pesticide. And okay. this would then trigger um, a response in the plant and it, the whole plant would turn red like a beetroot. So they would actually like activate the same pathway that like creates the, the red color in beetroot. So in, in theory, you could plant a field of these plants and when you have exposure to uh, this banned pesticide, the whole plant would turn red and you could immediately tell, oh, they have like this pesticide was like either used in a pasture and it's in a soil or like depending on the application, um, maybe it's like a new spray. 
Um, uh-huh. So that sounds very exciting, but like so often, so far in the study, they did it in yeast to show that it works, and in Arabidopsis, which is not a very useful plant for this type of application because it's like a, like a small, fast-growing plant, and usually you want these biosensors to stick around for a little bit longer than just like three weeks or four weeks. Um, so this is a cool proof of concept, um, but yeah, so another biosensor to actually detect uh, banned pesticides. Yeah, so and as my last thing for today, I want to talk about um, I want to talk about a, like a weird plant um, that's growing in the desert on very salty land, and it actually uses this big disadvantage to its advantage. Um, because, Wait, what? Okay, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like growing in the desert on salty lands is not usually what you would like think a plant would like and thrive in, but this plant maybe um, okay. Yes, no. <laughs> maybe you like solitude okay that was i i I apologize carry on i mean yeah maybe maybe you like for some people it's like for the same people that would go like live in the canadian forest all by themselves off grid maybe it's the same from a plant's point of view it's basically an environment where there's lots of light and i guess it's fairly unexploited as far as other i mean okay there's some limitations but there's not much competition Yes, exactly. Not much competition. And actually the salt in this very like dry environment where water is scarce, the salt can actually be an advantage. So this this uh, there's a shrub um, in in that researchers from Abu Dhabi have analyzed in uh, and it's called the Athel Tamarisk or Tamarix Afila. Um, it's a shrub that grows in the desert on, on high salt soils. And um, so it found a mechanism to deal with the salt by just like transporting it to its leaves and then actually it's secreting it on the leaves and it forms like large crystals of salt on the leaves on the outside of the plant, which is first of all a, a good way to get rid of the salt from inside the plant by just like putting it on the outside. Mm-hmm. But also like if you ever had like salt in a in a room where it's ac- like has access to humidity, it starts to like suck up that humidity and like clump like it's hygroscopic Uh and so you might think like you might have an idea already like where this is going this plant uses that that salt on its uh on its leaves uh, on these like salt deposits on on the branches um to acquire water during the day night cycle so when there's like high humidity in the air the humidity actually is like attracted by the salt by its like hygroscopic properties and then the plant can like sort of suck up the salt from like these these salt crystals back into the plant um and so there's like a day cycle where you can see like how all of the salt gets wet um then the plant like uses the water the whole thing dries out again when it's like during the like uh, noon when it's like very hot and very arid and then um, overnight again it absorbs the water and so this helps the plant to just like have water in the desert um and of course then the researchers were also like interested in in sort of the bionic application of it like it could be a very cool way to create new water harvesters from air by taking this principle of of having like sold on like long of like very like um distributed structures and then having the salt absorb the water and then you just have to find a way to extract the water again from the salt because like the salt very much like holds onto the water so i guess the plants will have like some dedicated transporters that that pull in the water and leave out the salt ions that is technically much harder to replicate but the idea is very cool to to use like this these salt properties of sucking water from the air to make harvest uh, water and make it available to the plant 
Yeah, I, I'm just having a quick look at it. Apparently, it's a weed of national significance in Australia simply because it does have this amazing ability to um, huh. get water really quickly. And it can even outcompete eucalyptus trees, which are native to Australia and which are like famous across many parts of the world for going in and taking water. Like eucalyptus just grow insanely fast once they hit water and they just like suck, suck, suck. And I guess this guy is outcompeting the eucalyptus. Um, according to a quick look at Wikipedia. And it also says that the salt, I mean, again, it's hinting that the salt in the leaves might make it difficult to burn as well. So it helps also make it extra fire retardant. Yeah, so it really took, it, it made the best out of a very bad situation for, for a plant. Mm. <coughs> <coughs> Cat fact. Uh, I brought uh, a red fact this Ooh. week. Um, it's deals about like I I always feel like a bit like it was more like icky talking about um, like animal re like research done on animals because like it begins with like a, a cool thing for the rats like they they build like a VR interface for the rat where they have sort of like a circular treadmill so wherever the, the rat walks it sort of is fixed in place but it can walk and then they have like a VR screen around it that um, fits to the to the movements that the rat does so like mm -hmm. for the rat it feels like it's moving in a direction but it's actually fixed in place okay um, but I guess the rat is not wearing cute little VR goggles it's got like electrodes right into its brain no? exactly like ah. like it has like this screen around it for for its all of its its vision um but then there's also like electrodes going into its brain that's why it's like fixed in place because then you can poke at the brain and um this is uh like then then doing that to understand if if rats have an imagination of of places or if they have an imagination at all so they um would uh, like the, the the rats at, at first would learn the locations in like this virtual uh, place for different spots that they are interested in. So they would could, they would learn to walk like in the in the screen to certain uh, areas, uh, and then they would f like fix them and put the electrodes in the brain and um, stop them from actually like moving around with their feet and just like sort of think about going to certain places and like from the recordings like at the first in the first step and like I'm, I'm not an animal brain scientist so like forgive me here for like the inaccuracies but in the first step they sort of had the rat go to places and visit the places in like this virtual setup and then mm -hmm. take sort of screenshots from the brain activity at these places and in the second step they would then have the rat imagine going to places and then they would measure the brain activity and compare it to the screenshots that they took beforehand. And so they could understand what the, what the rat was thinking about and they could map these two together. So the rat would think about being at certain spots like without actually being there, would imagine being there and they could measure that from the brain activity. Okay. Um, and they could even like they they called it, like the first one they called jumper challenge like the movie jumper because the rat would sort of like teleport to these spots without actually moving there it would just like imagine being at a spot and they could measure that that's why they called it jumper challenge and then they had a jedi challenge where they um showed like the rat imagines imagines manipulating certain objects in this vr environment um sort of like moving things in vr with its brain activity and uh, with images that the rat would recall and it would also again tell the researchers that the, the rat is able 
to just in their mind project certain certain things to happen, which tells us something about how the brain works and that that rats can also create these like mental images of things and not just experience things in the moment, but really have like yeah a, a memory painted in their minds of things of of places and things that like move and that they want to do and so they can and that is very important because this is a crucial ability to be able to plan ahead and remember events so they have that it helps them to have a concept of things that happened in the past and mm. things they want to do in the future and you can only like remember things properly and plan ahead if you are able to imagine things if you if you are able to imagine what happened in the past and if you are able to imagine what you want to happen um and so this tells us something that that, that rats are actually able to really like take home messages rats can plot and plan yes they can plot and plan and they can remember what they did like they can remember what you did to them and they can plot and plan their revenge. So, yeah. <laughs> Put electrodes into rats' brains. <laughs> Learn that rats will definitely remember this. <laughs> and can yes. do something about remembering that. Okay, cool. Yes. It's just like every time they do experiments, every time we do these kind of experiments about intelligence in animals, it just like moves that animal a little bit further up my animals to fear list, right? Like, I think, I think we kind of already <laughs> knew that rats are quite smart. Yeah. I mean, we also the documentary where the little rat was like manipulating that man by using his hair and like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like that one. That that scientific study that they did yeah, with yeah, like, yeah. in like French culinary arts. Uh, yes, I think it's that's like, the one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I cool. thought I thought it was already like sort of known that that I mean rats are famously good at solving mazes for example and i would think that has also something to do with like memory little faces like look at the schemy little face like clearly they, they, clearly they, 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 they rub their little they... hands exactly like yes. i think nobody was surprised by this to be honest yes i mean that's in, in hindsight we often say that and um... <laughs> <laughs> but it's good that we now have the research to really like prove yeah. that they're schemy little yes little we, can, we can now really say f- with certainty that they yeah. This is not good for their PR. Rats have such terrible PR. I don't know. Like, I often think, like, we hold human intelligence so high because, like, like obviously we we have are like some steps ahead to to most other organisms. Um, but it also shows us that like how little like that gap is. Like, like physiologically, they are already very close to having like the, the ability to plan ahead. It's just like evolutionary they allocate resources elsewhere than to grow like an even bigger brain where like we apes were lucky enough that like at some weird branch in evolution our brains just got big enough that we can like do podcasts about rats instead of just like being a rat and looking yeah, but for also, food like a rat can't smash me with a frying pan so i feel like i'm pretty safe like, <laughs> yes. That's a, like yes i'm smarter than a rat but i also have some other advantages over rats i would say yeah but, yeah, but you're like not that much smarter i think that's my take-home message wow. it's like we're all not that <laughs> much smarter than the animals like we're, we're just we, big bullies and if the rat was our size actually it would take us out if they if their if their brains would just be like some percentage bigger they or would, more ripply yes more more wrinkly i don't know what like yeah, not a brain scientist, so I don't really know what I the differences what are. Want. Yeah, that's what you want in a brain, a kind of wrinkly situation. Yeah, that like very. So I sometimes want a very smooth brain. Where just, okay, like, all thoughts just like bounce off. I it's think just, like, that's a sign that it's time for us to wind down for the evening. Um, say goodbye to you all. 
Thank you for listening. Um, you can find us on sometimes the Instagram and the Facebook at Plants and Pipettes, on the website at www.plantsandpipettes.com. And I mean, is anyone on Twitter still? If you're on X still, it's at Plants Pipettes. Sometimes Yaram is there. Yeah, I'm. No, I'm not really on Twitter anymore. Um, ever. <laughs> There's also like Mastodon and apparently Blue Sky, but we we didn't go there yet, I don't think. I think Yoram's definitely personally there, but Yes, but I also haven't even like looked at our Mastodon in a in a while. But yeah, technically best way to reach us uh at, at this time Carry is, a rat. It's yeah yeah, have a have a very smart rat that that they, they know how to reach us. Talk to your rats. Let him Jedi they... mind task his message to us. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>